Hello and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr. We'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us on Banter today is Andrew Biggs, who's a senior fellow with us at AEI, where he studies social security reform, state and local government pensions, and public sector pay and benefits. Before joining AEI, he was the deputy commissioner of the Social Security Administration. In 2001, he was also on the president's commission to strengthen Social Security. And in 2005, he was an associate director of the White House National Economic Council, also working on Social Security. Uh, best guess what we're going to talk about today, but <laughs> welcome well, to the show, Andrew. Well, you know, Phoebe, he's Andrew, before you say hello and welcome and all those nice things to Phoebe and I, you know, so let's be clear. Andrew is the yes. foremost expert in America. On Social Security, period. Mm-hmm. We like to have that among AI scholars. Don't tell them all, but not all of them are. Andrew is. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was I did an event earlier today, Andrew, and I want you to know I did it with Mark Warshawski, who's also the foremost expert on Social Security disability programs. Mm-hmm. So I was saying that I brought up Andrew's name at this event that was really Mark's event by saying we have this dynamic duo in yeah. Biggs and Warshawski on an important topic, a little esoteric, little nerdy, very important, and sure very uh, troubling for the, for our future. Okay, so Andrew, the you made some news not so long ago with, a, with an op-ed that said that we should cap what you get in Social Security. And it actually confused me a little bit because I didn't know that my Social Security benefits were capped. So could you just tell us how, wh- operationally what you're saying about the cap on Social Security? Sure. Most people know that there's a cap on the salary that you pay Social Security taxes on. Social Security is a 12.4% tax, and it applies to the first $160,000 in your annual salary. You're right. You're, I, did, I did know that. That I knew. Just to be clear. Exactly. Just to be clear. Now, the Social Security benefits are also calculated to replace part of that salary that's subject to taxes. And so, you know, in any given year, if there's a maximum tax, there's also a maximum benefit that you can receive. You can't receive a million dollars per year in Social Security benefits. This year, the maximum that somebody would receive if they're retiring at the normal retirement age would be a little bit over $42,000 per year. Okay, stop there. So for a wealthy person or a high-income earner, that actually sounds like very low. I pay in all these years for, you know, since I would, and don't, I'm not talking about me, but let's say there was someone out there who from the age 30 to the age 65 always made up in excess of $200,000 a year. They should know that no matter, even though they've made all that money and they paid in on up to that amount, the 167 or whatever the cap is on when you pay in, the Social Security administration limits what I can get in any other year to a cap. And that cap is roughly $45,000 now. Is that what you just said? That the numbers I said are, are correct. I think your, your characterization of that, it reflects how a lot of Americans think about social security. Let me put this in some international context for you. If you were living in Canada, you would only pay social security taxes on the first $70,000 of your your salary. Same if you were living in the United Kingdom. The maximum benefit that you could receive in those countries is one half to one third as high as in the United States. 
So the what I'm getting at with the $42,000 figure is not that it is low. It is that relative to what other countries that are similar to us pay, it's actually quite high. And the reason for that is they focus their Social Security programs much more on preventing poverty and old age. They focus them much less on providing you know, retirement benefits to middle and upper income retirees. For those things, people are expected to save more on their own. And in fact, they do that. So my proposal was $42,000 for one person in retirement today struck me as enough. It's well more than is required to keep you out of poverty. It's not anything, you know, approaching, you know, a safety net level of benefits. It's well, well more than that for a typical American. And my proposal was simply cap it at that. Going forward, the Social Security benefit formula says that you know, by 2050, the maximum benefit will rise to about $60,000 per year, even as Social Security becomes more and more insolvent. My small contribution to the solvency debate in this op-ed was say, look, $42,000 is enough. It's, if you cap it at $42,000, nobody's going to be thrown into poverty, but it does reduce costs for the program. So maybe we don't have to increase taxes quite so much. Right. And I get that. And I, and I see that you were building off the original theory of Social Security was that it's not a retirement program or retirement benefit program. It's a safety net program to ensure that everyone has a reasonable minimum to get by in their retirement years from the government. They can get other they can use other savings, have other benefits from other sources. But from the federal government Social Security program, we're just going to make sure you get up to this 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 reasonable minimum. It's not a replacement for 100% of your pre-retirement income. Precisely. I get that. But then you got some blowback, and the blowback came from a very, including a very prominent University of Chicago economist, and they were mad because I think they were, they were saying that, well, I paid in all this money. If I paid it into a private retirement benefit program, I would have gotten a lot more. Is that what they were trying to say? Well... I'm not necessarily saying – partly you could, people argue if I paid into a private retirement plan, I would get more. And there's some reasons why those comparisons aren't correct, which I'm happy to talk about. But the, the main pushback I got on that idea was not a financial one, but it was almost a moral saying, I paid in all these years. I earned those benefits. I deserve to get them. And, you know, and in a sense, that's correct. You know, they, they did what was asked of them, people who paid in these taxes. And you could argue, well, of course, they should get the benefits they've been promised. The problem is that Social Security reform inevitably, mathematically, has to be about breaking promises. We have told people that if you pay taxes according to this schedule, you will receive benefits based on this formula. And the problem is the tax schedule and the benefit formula are out of whack with each other. They're, they're inconsistent. The level of taxes we've been paying is not sufficient to, to pay the level of benefits we've been promising people. So we have to come to some adjustment to that. And you know, obviously there's you know, mathematically infinite number of ways you could do it. But my own idea on this is that Social Security does play a vital role in helping prevent poverty in old age. There's certain people who, for whatever reason, they can't afford to save on their own. Something bad happens to them. We all agree that the federal government should provide some safety. What is, I think, a much less essential role is whether Social Security should essentially be substituting for people's own savings. It should be providing generous benefits to middle and upper income retirees. 
if I have to do something to make this program solvent, I would personally start with the things that are really not essential to Social Security, but are things that people can easily do on their own. And saving for retirement, you know, I can spout the data all day long, is something middle and upper income Americans are extremely good at. We save a ton of money for retirement. Having the government provide it simply encourages us, us to save less. Got it. And I think very persuasive. I'm not trying to challenge you on it. I just wanted to understand it. it and But just one last thing on the cap. It does relate to the old George Bush proposal about privatization because the idea that the amount of money paid in for a middle or upper and middle income earner only gets you a certain amount based on the current formulas seems to some to be unfortunate because if, if the money was invested in the market, for instance, it would be able to provide more. Is, do, you, do you believe that? It's In one sense, it's obviously true. In the other sense, it's not true. It is true that if I took my Social Security dollars today and I invested them in stocks or bonds, I would almost certainly get more than what Social Security has promised me. The, the, the rate of return paid at any given time by you know, a 401k or an IRA is going to be higher than what Social Security promises. The reason for that, though, is that for, for the early generations of Americans participating in Social Security, Social Security is a much better deal than they could have gotten saving on their own. Social Security started collecting taxes in 1937, started paying out retirement benefits three years later in 1940. Because it didn't build up a true trust fund, it simply transferred those taxes right out the door to retirees. If you had something like a 401k or an IRA, you would not be able to get full benefits from that until a full working career after it started. So we could have started Social Security on a funded basis in 1937. You wouldn't have been paying full benefits until you know 1977, 1982, or something like that. So for literally decades, Social Security was a better deal. It was a giveaway to early participants. That's why it was so popular. But, but it's like a financial seesaw. That great deal for the early participants means that Social Security going forward is not going to be as good a deal. And there, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about it. Because mm -hmm. if I take my money and I my Social Security taxes, I invested in the stock market, because Social Security is a pay-as-you-go program, that leaves no money to pay for my grandparents' benefits. So if I have to come up with extra money to pay for their benefits, that reduces my rate of return, and then, you know, then you're back where you start. So the, it's a counterfactual. You know, If we had started Social Security differently, if we had funded it differently, would it pay a higher rate of return today? Yes, it would. But there's nothing we can do about that because for decades we gave away the money to retirees that we could have been using to build up a, a truly funded retirement system. I got it. Now, that's where, that's where the, the stuff runs into, into the road. That's the difficulty behind programs like what George W. Bush proposed. That if you divert your money to a personal account to get the higher return, we have to come up with extra money in order to keep benefit checks arriving in mailboxes. And nobody wants to come up with the extra money. So the other thing that you do in your writing on this topic of late, and I've seen you do it before, in your effort to achieve or get closer to solvency, you propose something like the cap, which has some savings involved, not a lot of savings, but some, and you, and you think is consistent with the history and principles and, and intention of Social Security, and I'm, I get that. 
And then and so you take away a little there for the middle and upper income beneficiaries. And then you have often raised the issue of a minimum benefit for people who are at the very bottom of the of of the of those who receive social security benefits by the amount of benefits they receive. And you want to raise the minimum benefit. Why don't, before I ask a question about that, why don't you first tell me what you want to do there, and then I want to ask you a question. Well, for this, I would refer you to the, the chapter I wrote on Social Security for a recent AEI book called American Renewal, which Paul Ryan was involved with, of trying to put together a policy agenda for Congress in, in coming years. And what I proposed there was something similar to the retirement system in Australia or New Zealand. It, I'll, I'll just focus on Australia for simplicity, but they offer a guaranteed sort of minimum income that's equivalent to the sort of poverty threshold in the United States. So effectively, no one in old age in, in Australia is going to retire into poverty, but they don't offer you more than that. What they do instead is they say, every worker has to automatically be signed up into a retirement plan on the job. Here, many workers have 401ks, but not everyone is offered one. Not everyone signs up for one. If you're in Australia, you have to be offered it. You have to participate. That makes the government's job much easier because the, the, the task for Social Security, in some cases, is helping people who are you know poor and old age through no fault of their own. But in other cases, it's helping people who could have saved on their own but didn't. What you have in a system like Australia is the government provides a true insurance payment so you don't retire into poverty, but the benefits you get on top of that are up to your own savings. So even as Social Security costs in the U.S. are rising and rising and rising, and we still have poverty in old age, a place like Australia has much lower old age poverty, and their Social Security costs, which are already lower than ours, are going to be dropping. So the question is, if I could frame it this way, do you want lower poverty and lower taxes in the future, or do you want higher taxes and the same poverty? This, it's, so it's trying to focus the government's resources where they're really needed, not having government do a lot of things it doesn't really need to do. And retirement benefits for rich people is something the government, it, it's not even a third order priority for the federal government. But the only thing is, Andrew, is that I was trying to envision these individuals who retire at 65 or 62 or 67 who have an, a social security benefit that's below the poverty line for an individual. And before I tell you what I think I'm thinking of, maybe you should tell me, who are those people? Why do they have social security benefits that are so low? They tend to about... 25% of people claiming Social Security get a benefit that is low, lower than the poverty threshold. So that gives you an idea of you know, how, how big a group that is. There's a couple of reasons why that can happen. You know, one reason mathematically is you simply work your whole career at very low wages, you know, minimum wage work or something like that. Another is people with very sporadic work histories. They're in and out of the labor market. That's, that's common. The, the final group is you will sometimes get recent immigrants who have worked here long enough to qualify for social security benefits, but they don't have a full work history, so they can't get a benefit that's above the poverty threshold. But that's pretty much how you, you end up with a social security benefit that nevertheless leaves you in poverty. 
Yeah, so taking those three groups, the one that I'm worried about, I mean, I'll be, I'd like to ask more about the people that stay at a minimum wage job their entire career, that those people exist, and I understand them, and I want to help them. But the sporadic or non-workers, aren't you a little worried about providing an, an, another incentive in our government-sponsored programs to people to not work? In theory, yes, if the people in those situations were, you know, perfectly rational economic actors who would look forward and, you know, project the money they can get from Social Security without working and then say that, you know, it's not worth it for me to do or whatever. Now, those people, if they retire into poverty with Social Security, they can still qualify for food stamps, housing benefits, SSI, things like that. So in a sense, it may not matter. But I think the one of the characteristics, and you're a much more of a welfare guru than I am, but I think one of the characteristics of people who during the working years end up in those situations is that they're myopic. They're not looking ahead in, in a way that would help them kind of optimize their choices over their lifetime. So I suspect, and we know this with behavioral economics, that a lot of people are, are not really thinking ahead in how they plan things for retirement. So I suspect the behavioral impact on that group in terms of saving less would be pretty small because they're basically not saving anything anymore. Yeah, but but they're not. But this isn't about saving; it's about working. But you're right. I mean, you're saying in effect that there are already a lot of incentives not to work in the safety net programs in the United States. This one, your new extra benefit for people at the bottom, isn't going to make it any worse. And besides, you'd have to really be thinking way ahead. Gee, I'm not going to work, and I don't have to worry about it because uh, the government's going to take care of me when I retire. If you you're probably think of right about. If you think of somebody who's approaching retirement age and they're on SSI, Supplemental Security Income, which is a means-tested, it is paid to the elderly, but it is a, is a pure welfare program based on need, not based on work or contributions. People in that situation are effectively prohibited from working. They're effectively prohibited from saving anything beyond a, a, a very minimal amount. If you have a universal retirement benefit, it says, look, you're just not going to retire into poverty. That doesn't restrict their ability to do those things and get some more. So it, it, it is clearly a, a choice which has you know, potentially some downsides for people. But when I first wrote up this plan several years ago, it... It won a policy design contest with the, the Wharton School's budget model, where they use a very sophisticated economic model to project how policies will affect the economy. And what they found with this proposal that I had made was it would increase economic growth over sort of a baseline of keeping the current program in place. Even if it has some work disincentives for people on the low end, the work and savings incentives for middle and upper income people are a lot greater. And so you end up with more economic growth because of it. But it, any policy like this has some form of trade-off to it. I want to ask a little bit about the very thorny political dimensions of this issue. Specifically, kind of what were your takeaways from working on this in the Bush years about how to not only kind of engineer the mechanics of this policy, but also make it politically palatable? It seems like as we get closer and closer to insolvency, it becomes even more of a third rail. So my question is really like, what do you think it will take for us to get anything done on this issue? What will make it urgent enough? Those are good questions. And my thinking has changed quite a bit 
since I worked in the Bush administration in 2005, when he made a very big push on Social Security. Partly my thinking changed in terms of how I want to present the ideas. The way George Bush presented them, the way they're usually presented in kind of Washington, D.C. policy discussions on Social Security is you start with the current benefit formula, which would take me about 20 minutes to explain to you. I mean, literally no ordinary American understands it. Mm -hmm. Then they add to it some also incomprehensible mathematical changes that if applied every year would somehow bring this program back to solvency. And you know, in the White House, they were very big and they wanted George Bush to show he had the technical chops to talk about how he wanted to fix Social Security. The problem with that is I remember getting calls from people on Capitol Hill, you know, staffers for members of Congress, senators, and they said to me, we have literally no idea what you are talking about. That this, mm -hmm. this very technical way of talking about it, it just goes over people's heads. The way I tend to think about it now is I ask myself, if you had somebody who's 18 years old who has never paid a penny into Social Security, isn't owed a penny by Social Security, we can give him whatever program we want. So if we were designing a Social Security program in a blank slate in the 21st century, it would look very different from what we designed in 1935. It would probably have a strong safety net against poverty and old age, similar to Australia, UK, Canada. But middle and upper income people would save more on their own. We'd facilitate that. So instead of talking about these technical changes or getting from here to there, I first try to lay out, here's where I want to end up. And then I do the technical changes to, to get there. So I think the presentation of that matters because ultimately people need to understand what, you know, what are they signing up for? What is the vision for what we want this program to do? How do we want it to work? What do we want to ask from people? I think designing that in plain English makes sense and then do the, all the actuarial mumbo jumbo. So I think that's something we, we should be better at. A second thought on you know, kind of what I've seen since George W. Bush's sort of failed reform drive is that the political spectrum on Social Security has simply shifted to the left. At the time Bush was doing his proposal, Republicans wanted to fix Social Security's you know, $20 trillion funding gap entirely on the benefit side. They didn't want to raise taxes, which meant they're going to reduce benefits pretty significantly going forward. Centrist Democrats said we want a mix of tax increases and benefit cuts. The most progressive Democrats said we will not have any benefit cuts at all. Today, the whole thing has shifted to the left. Donald Trump's position today, no benefit cuts for no person in no time, is precisely the same as the most progressive Democrats had back in 2000. Likewise, progressive Democrats say, I mean, 90% of House Democrats have voted in favor of legislation or a co-sponsored legislation. We fix Social Security's gap entirely by raising taxes, and then we raise taxes even more to expand Social Security benefits across the board. So the whole spectrum has shifted to the left. Congressional Republicans who traditionally wanted to cut Social Security, balance the budget, avoid tax increases, they're in a bind because those are precisely the most Trumpy members of Congress, and yet mm -hmm. their sort of spiritual leader is attacking anybody who, who wants to cut benefits. Trump and Biden are talking from the same song sheet on Social Security. Both of them promise never to cut any benefits, yet neither of them actually has a plan to, to pay for the benefits they've been promised. Neither have proposed a tax increase is sufficient to keep their promises. So the policy discussion is, 
it's they're in a box right now, and they they need some leadership and adult thinking to get their way out of it. Well, they're in a box because um, it's apparently that's what the people want. I mean, they're they're just reflecting the the opinion of their constituents who think that looks like a lot gets taken out of my paycheck every month for Social Security. I know because Andrew Biggs has taught me that the benefits actually don't replace more than $50,000 of my, my, my income. That, you know, a lot of Americans make more than that. And they figure, I mean, that's the best it can do. It, let's not make it worse. For me, that's, I think, the way they look at it. I mean, is it, what about that, Andrew? Don't you think that's the way they look at it? They think, I, I'm paying a lot now and I'm not getting that much? You just as much said you're not getting that much. Or maybe you didn't. Maybe you thought that the $450,000 people get a year is, is actually quite generous. You said that it was quite I generous compared to... I personally think the idea that a single retired individual would get $42,000 a year from the federal government as a straight check, this is not Medicare or some other subsidy. This is just a check come to your mailbox. I think $42,000 per year from the federal government to somebody who earned over $100,000 a year throughout their life, I think is crazy. There's just yeah. no reason to do it. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Let me frame. That explains the, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's just, it's $42,000 per year is more than the median earnings of an American out there in the workforce today, you know, earning their living. Now, I think people can say, look, I paid taxes all of my life. I should get this. And I, I understand the sentiment. The problem is if we want to keep paying you that 42000 and more and more each year, we're going to have to change the deal on the tax side. And be, again, because the system's insolvent. So the, the issue is not do you want to keep paying what you've been currently paying and get that high benefit, is do you want to pay more into the system in order to get more from the system? I got it. We're going to protect the earners no matter what. The question is, should middle and high income Americans pay more to get more or pay less and get less? A couple of years ago, I commissioned a survey question with a, an ongoing survey that the RAND folks out in California do. And I asked people, you know, if you wanted to increase your income in retirement, would you rather pay more into Social Security and get a bigger Social Security check or pay more into your retirement account and draw more from that? across the board over almost every category. It was about a three to one margin in favor of paying more to myself instead of paying more to Social Security. So it's, you know, it, it's a tough choice for people. There's no solution where we don't have to change taxes or benefits. My idea is let's do it in a way that A, people prefer, and B, doesn't hurt the people who really, really rely on this program. Right. Now, can I just what percentage of Social Security beneficiaries get an amount that's close to that that forty two thousand dollars a year? Say thirty six to forty two. I mean, the forty two it, it's very few because that's the maximum benefit. So it's about two percent get that. If you're looking at thirty six to forty two, maybe maybe ten percent. The issue though is when I say capping it, I mean. Go, go back to what I proposed. I said the maximum benefit is $42,000 a year. Let's cap it at forty-two. Now, if the maximum benefit was always going to be $42,000 a year, capping it doesn't do anything. The reason the cap actually saves you some money is that in future years, that maximum benefit is going to be more than $42,000. 
Yeah. The maximum benefit in 2000 was like $28,000. Now it's $42,000. In 2050, it'll be close to $60,000. My proposal, let's just say 42 is enough. If you're, you know, if you're entitled to 41, we'll leave you alone. But if you're, if some future year you're entitled to 43 or 50 or 60, you're still just going to get 42. Nobody's going to starve because of that. If we do it, we can hold back on tax increases, which are going to disproportionately hit high earners. So it's making a decision that people in that range, they value their taxes more than they value those benefits. That it's but, on that any, yeah, but on any given year, the, um, the number of people affected by the cap, according to what you just said, is very small. It will increase over time, though. Yeah. Because the maximum, think about it this way, in, in, in this year, maybe 2% of new retirees will get more than $42,000 a year. But I, I've got the number somewhere, which I calculated. But if you go, say, to 2040, 2050, then you're looking at, say, 20% of new retirees getting more than $42,000 a year. If we cap that, we can generate some savings for the program yeah. without hurting anti-poverty efforts at all and doing a way that it, those people are simply going to save more on their own. I mean, the relationship between the generosity of Social Security benefits and the amount people save on their own for retirement, if you look country to country, you compare us to other OECD countries, it's very clear. If you have more generous Social Security benefits, people just save less for retirement on their own. They're, they're optimizing in that sense. And so I just don't see the need for the government to be providing that level of benefits to people. And, Only and no, no, I agree. But, uh, but, but let's also, the other part of your work that we haven't talked about is the extent to which you've shown just how well off retirees are because of those private plans and, and, the, and, their, and the various incentives to save. The sources of income for people that are hit by the cap from either their retirement plan or their pension plan, they're, they're not small, right? Don't you, don't you say that people that say there's a retirement, retirement savings crisis in America have got it wrong? Oh, sure. And, and this leads, my views on retirement savings, private savings, and my views on Social Security, they talk to each other. Yeah. In the sense that if I thought the private retirement savings system in the U.S. was terrible, that we had some retirement crisis, I would be more inclined to maintaining full benefits for Social Security, even for middle and upper income people. You know, there's some folks who claim even those people are not saving enough. When you actually look at the data on private retirement savings, they're through the roof. I mean, total retirement savings today are six times higher than they were back when traditional pensions were kind of predominant. More people are contributing to retirement plans. Their contributions are bigger. Median retirement income, say, are record highs. Poverty in old age is at record lows. So, and, and the research does indicate that middle and upper income people substitute Social Security and their own personal savings against each other. If you give them more in Social Security, they'll save less on their own. Give them less in Social Security, they'll save more on their own. So if you cap that maximum benefit, high earners are just going to tweak their contribution rates up a little bit, or they'll retire a little bit later, or, or something like that. This is the reason I propose limiting benefits in the future for middle and high income retirees isn't to be mean. It's because this is the, the actually the least painful way of doing things. I mean, if I cut you know, somebody's Medicaid benefits, they're in a tough situation. Even if I cut your Medicare benefits, if you have high health care costs, it's a tough thing to insure yourself against. 
If I cut your future Social Security benefits and you're already rich, you just tweak up your 401k contribution and keep going. It's really it, it's the least unpleasant way to handle a 25% funding shortfall in the federal government's biggest program. So it's there's no easy way to fix this simply because the program is enormous and the funding gap is enormous. But I think this is the, the least painful way to do it. So I came to Washington in 1985 after getting out of college, and it seemed to me then they were saying, you know, Bruce Babbitt, the governor of Arizona, had an entitlement reform proposal, and and Herb Stein was saying that, you know, unsustainable trends are, uns are unsustainable. People were talking about the end of Social Security and Medicare back then. They have It hasn't happened yet. What will happen when it happens? Well, right now, the Social Security Trust Funds are projected to run out somewhere between 2032 and 2035, depending on whether you favor the CBO's projections or Social Security's. But, you know, somewhere in that area, the trust funds will run out. A lot of people say, well, that's, you know, we faced that problem back in 1983. The trust funds are going to run dry. We waited to the last minute. You know, we could just come together, patch it together. There's no reason to do anything now. The problem is that the shortfall we're going to hit in 2035 is big. It's much bigger than what they were looking at in 1983. I mean, back in those days, if, if Congress had done nothing in 1983, you would have had benefit cuts of about 4% that would have lasted for five or six years. The system would have come back into solvency on its own because of the baby boomers and all that. It just, you know, I'm glad they fixed it, but it's just not, it wasn't at all what we're looking at in 2035. When the trust fund runs out, then you're looking at benefit cuts of around 20% across the board for retirees, disabled survivors, new and old beneficiaries alike. The system will never come back into solvency. The, the benefit cuts will just get bigger in following years. So this is a real challenge. Of, so the benefit know, cuts, the benefit cuts that are that you're describing are it fixed in law. If the if the fund doesn't have the money, it will automatically cut everyone's benefits without any act of Congress, and, and yes. that, that's, that's the way it works. Well, you know, Social Security is supposed to be a self-financing system. That's how we get the whole mantra that, you know, I paid for my benefits, I earned my benefits, you can't take them away from me. You know, my, my answer to that is, look, if everybody paid for the benefits, the system would not be running out of money in 2035. If when the system runs out, or the trust funds runs out, legally, Social Security can't just call on you know, income tax revenues or something like that. If nothing else happens, then the default thing in the law is you cut benefits by about 20%. And now, Congress will not allow that. They'll do something. My point is, it's far better to start early than to leave it to that. I mean, that's going to be a really difficult situation. And besides the cap, what else do you think we should do? Well, you can... Ultimately, on the saving side, on the saving, on the saving side. side, ultimately, I mean, the, the cap was something, capping the maximum benefit was something I proposed as sort of a, not a stopgap, but as kind of some minimum thing that members of Congress should look at today and say, yeah, I, you know, I might be Republican, I might be Democrat, but I really don't see a pressing need to be paying rich retirees more than 42 grand a year. That struck me as the bare minimum that they should be able to agree on. What I would like to see going forward is that we immediately raise the minimum benefit so that nobody retires into poverty. 
over time, the maximum benefit shrinks down so that ultimately, you know, 30, 40 years from now, you get something that is like Australia's system, where you have a, a, a flat benefit that goes to everyone and it protects you against poverty. But on top of that, you save on your own. And alongside that, we do similar to what Australia has done. We make sure everybody's off a retirement plan at work. Everybody's enrolled in a retirement plan. That is a, it's a pretty simple way of providing for retirement income security for people. The tough part is just getting from here to there. So that ultimately, that's where I think we want to go on this. Capping that $42,000 level was simply to say, look, I know you guys are, aren't up for doing a comprehensive plan right now, but here's the bare minimum. I think you should be able to agree on. I got it. I got it. And what was the, what's the savings? I mean, is it on an annual basis of that? What was, what was the projection? Capping it would, it's, this is a social security kind of wonk thing. You, you tend not to think in terms of annual numbers. You know, if you cap it this year, you'll save nothing because you know the maximum is right. $42,000 a year. When I kind of modeled it going forward, I think that cap would solve around 15 or 20% of the program's long-term financing gap. And so extend now the, over time. Extending extending the your projected run out year from 2032 to 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 2045 or 20 it would do it would do less than that. And the, the reason for that is it's just it's slow to be implemented. But what it does is instead of say when the trust fund runs out and under current law you're looking at a twenty percent benefit cut, you'd be looking at a fifteen percent benefit cut, something like that. So the idea is this is not gonna fix the program's problems on its own. The idea is this is the baby steps of, you know, let's just agree we don't, you know, we don't need to be providing this level of benefits to people who are already the richest retirees in the world. And given that, you know, you, you're a you're a, a veteran of the Social Security political wars, you know, probably more than anybody else. Phil Logman. You guys know who Phil Longman is? I bet you I know, do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's been doing this for years. But you're the only other person I put in the same category. Maybe I've got that wrong, Andrew, but that's how I think of it. Given that you have been through all of those wars for all of these years, were you surprised at the reaction to your pretty pretty mild and, and easy benefit reduction? In, in one sense, yes. Another, no. I mean, in, in what I would claim is a rational sense, I say I was surprised in the sense that it just is sort of from a financial standpoint or a public need standpoint, there's just no need to be paying more than 42 grand a year. But what happens with Social Security, and this was this sort of clever slash insidious nature of what Franklin Roosevelt set up, is that it's not, people don't view Social Security as like a welfare program, a transfer program where, you know, the federal government tweaks it and adjusts it from year to year and, you know, you just hope for the best. Roosevelt set it up to look like a private pension where you pay in and that money's saved and you're going to get that money back later. Psychologists have shown that when things are framed in a moral way, people react much more strongly to it than if it's simply a financial calculation. And so the pushback I got was almost entirely on a moral standpoint of I paid for this, I deserve to get it. And, you know, in some moral sense, everybody deserves to get everything. But in a mathematical sense, we can't do it. We can't, we can't pay you those 
that level of benefits unless you're willing to pay higher taxes. Nobody is. You know, we've gone 40 years knowing we could have raised Social Security taxes to keep the system solvent and not raising taxes. So people don't want to do that either. This is, it's a real case of, it's not even procrastination, it's kicking the can. That, right. that people today refuse to pay higher taxes, despite being told since the Clinton administration before that they wanted full benefits, they had to pay higher payroll taxes. They refused to pay it. Now we're approaching insolvency and they're like, you know, how dare you not pay me my full benefits? Like, you know, that, if we had raised taxes beginning in the late 1980s, when we knew again that Social Security was going to go insolvent in the future, if we just raised taxes gradually as needed to keep the system solvent, somebody retiring today, a middle-income person retiring today, would have paid over $100,000 over the career in additional payroll taxes. Because we procrastinated, they, they saved that $100,000. And guess what? They're still going to get their full benefits because Congress doesn't have the heart to do it. The problem is that $100,000 cost doesn't disappear. It goes on to their kids or their grandkids. So it's, you know, people... You know, if people are really concerned about future generations, we wouldn't be acting the way we act. So I think part of it is selfishness by Americans, you know, it's a human trait, and then politicians reacting to that selfishness by saying it's easier for me to do nothing today, which is precisely what you're getting from Donald Trump. He doesn't have a plan to pay full Social Security benefits. He just makes a promise and then ignores the rest of it. You know, and politicians have picked up, they can get away with that because you're just foisting costs on the future generations. But now, Andrew, don't I mean, I don't want to I don't want to upset you, but you, that moral argument did come out. But and but it also I mean, I mean, and I'm, I'm sort of curious about your reaction and whether you, you know, had an offline conversation with him or how does how does you know someone react? I mean, I thought didn't wasn't there a letter from Gene Fama, the University of Chicago economist on this that kind of made that moral argument or. What yeah, was he yeah, saying? Did, did, did you have any contact with him or did you reach out to him or talk to him? Oh, yeah, we had a, we had a number of follow-up discussions. And I told him how I recently explained how sort of the, the efficient stock market theorem works to my 14-year-old. Well, once yeah. he realized, he, he, he saw the light come on his eyes as all his friends were saying, if you buy stock, you should buy Tesla. And I said, well, Tesla might already be well-priced. Maybe you should look for something else. But no, we, we talked about that. And, you know, one thing, I mean, it's, and you know, he was you know, fully ready to admit that Social Security is not something he had really focused on. But I think you know, what was going on there was not that he was working out a spreadsheet and said, you know, I should get this in some financial sense or I need this in some sense. But yeah. it was just the idea that, look, I paid in this all my life. Why are you trying to screw me now? Which yeah, is yeah. an entirely human reaction. And right. the reason we're trying to <laughs> screw you now to put I mean, he didn't use that phrase, but it was just yeah. but the reason we're trying to do that is, A, we have no choice but to screw somebody. Because the system's out of whack and there's no free money sitting around waiting to be taken. If we have to screw people, I say we screw them in the way they prefer to be screwed, which is they prefer lower benefits and higher taxes. And we focus it on the people who can afford to be screwed, <laughs> which is people who are not going to be in poverty and retirement. So right. if you want to exert to this clip about who is getting screwed, how and why, <laughs> you know, that will sort of sum it up. But that's really I mean, it, honestly, Social Security reform is all about breaking promises. There is there is nothing fair about this. And you, you can't make it fair because what happened 
was all this money that could have been used to fund today's benefits was paid right out the door to early retirees who got vastly more in benefits than they ever paid in taxes. People going up to now receive something like $20 trillion more in benefits than they paid in taxes. Those are the guys who took your money. That's the reason why you have to get screwed or treated unfairly now, because those guys got a windfall. The problem is a counterfactual. We can't take back that money. It's all gone. Yeah, I got that on the, on that on that crowd that paid in a lot less than they're getting back. But right now, when 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 I retire, you know, I'm I'm 61. Let's say I stop at 67 or 68, and I've sort of given you a sense of my earnings history. And let's say I lived in 85. Will I get more back than I paid in, or less? You'll you'll probably get a little bit less, but not dramatically less. I mean, the Social Security Administration calculates and estimates these numbers. For a high-income person, because the benefit formula is progressive, you'll probably get a little bit less. And you'll probably get 85, 90% of what you paid in out. So you're not going to have In in inflation-adjusted dollars or real dollars? In in inflation-adjusted dollars, including interest. So, you know, if including interest, if you got... 100% 100% of your taxes out, that would be the same as if you had just bought government bonds or something like that. You're going to get a little bit less than that because Social Security pays a lower return, it's redistributive, and so forth. Yeah. But if you're, if you're a middle-income couple, but think, if you're a middle-income couple retiring today, Social Security is a much less good deal today than it was in the past. But if you're a middle-income couple, typical couple retiring today, even today, Social Security is promising you 30 or 40% more in benefits that you paid in taxes. It's it's very hard for somebody to say morally, I just want to get out what I paid in. Okay, we can do that. We can cut benefits a lot if we just do that. From the middle on down, Social Security is still promising people more in benefits than they paid in taxes. Medicare is doing it almost across the income spectrum. Yes. So it is. Just, it becomes this sort of Ponzi scheme where you're simply saying, okay, you're, you know, you're going to get a good deal. You're going to get a good deal. And suddenly you're going to hit the point where you can't do that. Yeah. And that's in the people who are stuck holding the bag is our, you know, our kids and grandkids who can't vote on this. The people who make the decisions are precisely the ones who benefit from delaying action, from not acting responsibly on this. So I ask this of all the scholars, this is the last question for me, is what are you, what are you going to do about this? I mean, what's your, what's your plan of action and, and what is your expected time of success? I mean, when, when, when do you think you're going to get this through? <laughs> the day before the trust fund runs out. <laughs> it's, you know, it, that's, it's, a, it's a tough question because you have to get people to do things that are sort of against their interest against their political interest to do, against maybe their financial interest to do. But part of what I've tried to do on this in, you know, my writings at AEI, congressional testimony, private discussions with members of Congress, is to give them a picture of the lay of the land, of the, the, the choices they face, of people's willing or ability to support themselves with savings outside of Social Security, give a better context on and I thought for a while I was doing pretty well, but the, the Trump stuff, to be honest, makes that much, much more difficult. Yeah, I was, it, I was feeling for you. I was feeling that it's this it's, that it, shouting it, match between Biden and the House Republicans must have broken your heart. 
it was tough. I mean, it's because, you know, I mean, you know, Biden was sort of mischaracterizing the, the Republicans' point of view. He said in the State of the Union, some Republicans want to sunset Social Security, which means in five years' time, you had to vote to reapprove it. Now, some means literally two. It was <laughs> Rick Scott and Ron Johnson in the Senate. Nobody else was on board with this idea of sunsetting, and McConnell threw the idea out the window immediately. So, you know, President Biden was playing some politics there, but, you know, Rick Scott handed him the stick with which to hit him. That scared the heck out of a lot of Republicans. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of months ago, they said, maybe we'll go after Social Security reform as part of a debt ceiling agreement. Then they started getting hit by President Biden. They said, OK, not not in the debt ceiling. Now they may be saying not at all. We're just not going to touch it. But. If you were to go back 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it was required of somebody running for president that had something approaching a plausible plan on how to keep Social Security solid. Yep. I just don't. If that is still demanded of members of Congress today, then a lot of these guys or, or people running for president, a lot of them are going to have a real tough time because they made promises on benefits that they are not willing to back up with tax increases. You know, they're simply just waving their arms and hoping you know, magic happens or something like that. And it's it's a very politically immature way of handling things, and it's just poor leadership. Yeah. Well, on that depressing note, we'll stop now. Andrew, thank you very much. I appreciate you being with us. My pleasure. As I said, you are the foremost scholar, the leading scholar on Social Security in the country, and we're very proud that you're at AEI. So thanks. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.